Welcome to the first episode of HIV Unmuted, the IAS, International AIDS Society's podcast. I'm your host, Femi OK. It has been 40 years since AIDS was first reported. Come with us through these last four decades as HIV Unmuted brings together the global HIV changemakers from community, policy and science. You'll learn about the seminal moments, the scientific advances, as well as the human endeavors central to the response. In 1981, cases of a rare pneumonia were found in five healthy gay men in Los Angeles, which was later identified as AIDS. Within two years, the virus that causes AIDS was discovered, spurring hopes for a vaccine. But a vaccine has proven to be elusive. It's been four decades of pain, loss, hope and breakthroughs. Today, we'll speak with the people who were there at the very start including someone who has been at the forefront of the AIDS response, serving under seven US presidents. That man, of course, Dr. Anthony Fauci. And we'll meet community advocates from Asia and Africa to myth-bust common misconceptions about HIV vaccines. But before we do that, let's head back to 1981. The Cold War is in full effect. We can have a strong and prosperous America. Ronald Reagan is the new American president. Lady Diana and Prince Charles are married. Nelson Mandela, at this point, has been imprisoned for 17 years. IBM introduces its first personal computer, and medicine is entering a new era, thanks to discoveries like the MRI. In January of 1981, Dr. Michael Gottlieb, a physician and assistant professor at the University of California, Los Angeles, was part of a startling discovery. Well, that particular day in January 1981 was an ordinary day. Uh, my routine was the same. And on rounds in the afternoon, uh, one of the postdoctoral fellows uh, told me about a patient he had seen on the wards. We were amazed that he had come in with this opportunistic infection, pneumocystis pneumonia, which we just didn't see in folks coming in off the street. Now, this type of pneumonia is rare in otherwise healthy people which these young men appeared to be. How rare? I had never seen a case of pneumocystis pneumonia. And we looked at his immune system because we were immunologists by training and uh, found that his CD4 cells had basically gone missing, a particular type of T cell that uh, is important in fighting a whole host of infections. Doctors had never seen anything like this before. Healthy young men whose immune systems had been ravaged. At that point, we're thinking that something's up. And uh, we had no idea how big it was about to be. And then we began hearing from our gay physician colleagues that they had many more young men who also had swollen lymph glands and uh, low-grade fevers and didn't feel well. And we began to think that, at least in that population here in Los Angeles, that there was something going on uh, beyond the peak of the iceberg, which was uh, these patients with opportunistic infections, that there must be a base of the iceberg, and that whatever we were seeing was going to turn out to be much more common. On June the 5th, 1981, Michael and his colleagues published an article in the U.S. Centers for Disease Control Weekly Morbidity and Mortality Report. It was used by health professionals to track emerging threats and trends. 
the article wasn't even the top news. Our article is the second article uh, entitled Pneumocystis Pneumonia, Los Angeles. And it first article is an article on dengue fever on U.S. travelers to the Caribbean. So it's not the lead story. And uh, I have talked to many people since who tell me uh, that they remember where they were when they read that report, that it made such an impact on them, kind of like the day that Kennedy was shot. One of those days that you, uh, that's indelible in your memory. Calls began to pour in from around the country as doctors recognized the same baffling symptoms in their patients. It didn't have any name. Uh, for a while, it was called GRID and gay-related immune deficiency, which was, of course, inappropriate. But it wasn't called AIDS. Uh, we had no inkling that it was about to become what it became. Because AIDS seemed to affect only gay men and people who inject drugs, both marginalized groups, research suffered from a lack of proper funding. This is a cause Michael has dedicated his life to. So too with Greg Gonzalez, but in 1981, he was just graduating high school. I guess I'm maybe the first of the AIDS generation in terms of uh, becoming a gay man uh, right at the time that the virus hit New York City and, and the rest of the country. It's the early 1980s, and though AIDS is becoming known in scientific circles, many young gay men hadn't even heard about it. I think actually in the first few years, for, for the youngest generation of, of young men um, coming of age at that point, the AIDS epidemic was not on their radar. So there's no information, right? There is no information. It's not like it's being covered by the mainstream media. There's a little bit of information in the gay press, but the gay press in, in Boston, Massachusetts, was were two small papers. Um, if you wanted to figure out what was happening to you and to your friends, you had to go find information. Greg's search for information began with a personal revelation. I met somebody who fell in love, and then a month or so later, he came over saying that he had to break up because, um, and he wouldn't tell me, and he was crying, and it was it was a pretty dramatic scene. Um, and he finally came out to me and said I was HIV positive, and I I never sort of conceptualized it before, but I said, look, we'll get through it, we'll figure it out together. But nothing was happening. No funding, no awareness, nothing. We really weren't on the radar of anybody. You know, Reagan never said the word AIDS until years into his presidency, and they laughed about it in the Oval Office. We didn't matter, right? Gay men were basically disposable people. The gay community fought back by organizing. Greg joined ACT UP, well known for huge public displays meant to shake the establishment into action. He later co-founded the Treatment Action Group, and after years as an activist, Greg realized that his love of science, stoked years earlier in college, still burned brightly. He earned his PhD at Yale School of Public Health, where he's an assistant professor. Dr. Michael Gottlieb has also dedicated his life to HIV as a doctor and activist. Today, he works at AIDS Project Los Angeles. 40 years, that's a long time. There has been some spectacular progress in terms of treatment, but scientists have repeatedly run into obstacles when it comes to the vaccine. The rapid development of several effective COVID-19 vaccines in less than a year has many today questioning why an effective HIV vaccine has proven so difficult to find. 
Enter Dr. Anthony Fauci, the world-renowned scientist, director of the United States National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, who has been at the helm of the HIV response since day one. I'm probably one of the few people still around who actually was involved in those very first weeks in the summer of 1981, when the first cases were reported in the United States, even though that's not the only place that that was going on. But at that time in June and July of 1981, we became aware that we were dealing with a brand new syndrome. And I made a decision at that point in the summer and fall of 1981, that I was gonna turn around the direction of my research and focus completely on this unusual disease that didn't have a name yet, that certainly didn't have an etiologic agent, but that mysteriously was infecting what was felt to be incorrectly only young gay men when we didn't realize at the time that globally it was very much, much more diffuse than just in the gay population. But that was my first introduction to that in the very, very first weeks of the recognition of the outbreak. What is it like, Dr. Fauci, as a scientist, somebody who researches infectious diseases, to come across something that nobody has seen before? How does that change your work? What is that like? Well, it's a very unique and, in my own experience, unprecedented. And that's the reason why it was so stunning. And I remember very, very clearly exactly where I was when I got that second MMWR on July 5th, 1981. I was sitting in my office right near my lab, right near a ward where we see patients. And I read this and it was the second one, the first one, which was only five young gay men who had this unusual syndrome I thought was a fluke. And I just put it aside. But when one month later, the second report had 26 curiously and strikingly only young gay men who not only had pneumocystis, but also had underlying opportunistic infections as well as Kaposi's sarcoma. Then I just felt just shocked because I knew deep down this was something new that had never been seen before. And I had been a physician now for some time. I was now, had been at the NIH already for nine years in infectious diseases and immunology. And I knew something new when I would see it. And this was it. And it was both exciting and frightening at the same time. And that was the thing that actually made me absolutely certain that that's what I wanted to pursue. This was a mysterious new disease in my field, which was infectious disease. I assumed correctly, as did most everybody else, that this was a infectious disease. It had to be based on the etiology, uh, the, the epidemiology. It, it had to be an infectious disease. And that's where it started. And interestingly, 40 years later, I'm still pursuing various aspects of this disease. At what point did politics start to impact research? Well, I think almost from the very beginning, because in the United States, uh, as elsewhere in the world, since it was predominantly a disease among young gay men, and then we found out it was among injection drug users, and then commercial sex workers, all of which were disenfranchised populations of people. And so, particularly at that time in the early 1980s, 
that we had our government, our executive branch was very much leaning towards being a conservative uh, government, which uh, I wouldn't say politics entered into it, but I think what you would call rather neglect of appreciation and focusing on what can be done about it. Because it's well known that in the very early years, Ronald Reagan, who had so many good aspects to him, did not use the bully pulpit of the presidency to call attention to this emerging outbreak in which we were seeing only the tip of the iceberg. So I wouldn't necessarily call that politics in the classic sense, but it was not utilizing the machinery of politics to get ahead of this. And unfortunately, it was neglected for a bit. Out of all of the seven presidents that you have seen and you've worked with in some capacity, which of the presidents would you say, I know you're very diplomatic, so I'm interested to see what you're going to say here, had the best attitude towards HIV AIDS? Well, I believe that George H.W. Bush was really made a major transition from the almost neglect of the, the problem to uh, beginning to address it. Clinton carried that forward. But of all the presidents who had the major impact on it, no doubt it was George W. Bush. And I felt extremely privileged when he asked me to go back to Africa and to try and put together a program that would be transforming and accountable that could turn around the situation in the developing world, particularly Southern Africa, because he felt as a very moral individual, a very ethical person, that as a rich country, we have a moral obligation to make sure that people don't suffer and die from a disease merely because of where they happen to live. And that's why he told me to go to Africa and put together a program which turned out to be what we ultimately call the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR. So even though many presidents, Obama was very, very good, no doubt about that. I mean, there, the president's varying degrees, but the president who had the major impact on global AIDS unquestionably is George W. Bush. And I will be forever indebted to him for giving me the opportunity to work with him to develop the PEPFAR program. Let's talk about the activists who were really keen to push for treatment and also vaccine and a cure for HIV. Well, the overall impact was extraordinarily positive. Early on, they had to be very provocative, iconoclastic and disruptive in order to gain the attention of the scientific community and the regulatory community when it came to the approval of drugs, when it came to the design of clinical trial. Again, I've done a few things that I feel good about, some things that you feel less good about, but then one of the things I feel really quite good about is the fact that I extended myself to a group of individuals who most of the scientific community shied away from and ran away from because they were so provocative and so disruptive. But I made a decision early, early on that rather than be put aback by them, why not just put aside the theatrics 
and listened carefully to what they were saying. And if one listened carefully to what they were saying, they made perfect sense. It's hard to think back four decades and, and say, do you remember eight times HIV really had an impact on you? There were many things, but one that really stood out, and that is the issue of parallel track. And parallel track was a concept where you wanted to do a clinical trial with all the pristine conditions to make sure you got it right, you knew what the toxicities of a particular drug were. But if you have the restrictions of a clinical trial, that excludes so many people who have no other option and no other intervention, no other drug, be it a drug for HIV or for an opportunistic infection. So many of the activists, for example, led an act up by Jim Igo, led on the West Coast by Marty Delaney, were saying, why not do a parallel track? Why don't you allow the drug to be made available to people under informed consent who have no other options for treatment and call it a parallel track? That was something that was unheard of among the scientific community to do that. The regulatory community was dead set against it because they felt that would be disruptive of the information, the pristine information that you would get from the clinical trial. They convinced me that that was the way to go, turned me around and I became a very strong advocate for the parallel track approach, which by the way, is the forerunner of the compassionate use type of an approach that now is very, very common in the regulatory agencies. That was born with the activists and their concept of parallel track. What do you hope will come out of HIV science in the next five years, Dr. Fauci? What is possible? Well, the big and last holy grail that we have to achieve is to develop a safe and effective vaccine. We have done spectacularly well over the years with antiretroviral drugs that we all know now have been transforming in their ability to suppress virus to below detectable level, thus not only saving the life of persons with HIV and allowing them to live essentially, for the most part, a normal life and, and approaching a normal lifespan but also by keeping the level of virus to below detectable, it essentially as makes transmissibility impossible for a person with an undetectable viral load. And then we have pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is very, very important. We now have long acting antivirals that make it easier to do a therapeutic regimen for someone. But the one last thing that we absolutely need to do that would be the nail in the coffin of this pandemic would be a safe and effective vaccine. And that's a lot of efforts being put into that. And as difficult as it is, I believe it's achievable. Last talk here for you, Dr. Fauci. It is looking back over 40 years, how would you sum up the first four decades of the world living with HIV? Well, I think it's been a situation of of tragedy in many respects, of suffering and pain, but of also extraordinary advances that have been made that have really transformed. It's been decades of courage on the part of persons living with HIV. All of that has been extraordinary. An effective HIV vaccine. That's what Dr. Fauci believes we need. And 
Ever since the early days, there have been many myths surrounding HIV and to this day, myths continue, particularly around vaccines as we've seen with COVID-19. We asked Maureen about the belief by some that an HIV vaccine can give you HIV. My name is uh, Merlene Luba. That's a common fear that I've, I've heard, but it's simply because people uh, in the most communities, they still don't fully understand, right, how uh, an HIV vaccine is developed, right? So for them, they, you know, they feel because of how other vaccines have been developed, you know, they think with an HIV vaccine, they're actually going to take an HIV virus and inject it into your body. We reached out to a community liaison officer in Uganda to weigh in. I am Vincent Basaja. Vaccine promoting information is given to target audiences in a way that they can understand. We must simplify science so that science makes sense to the ordinary person. Udom tells us how we can combat misinformation. Hello, my name is Udom. I think that the way to change people's attitudes is that we have to explain to them how there's a um, safety measure built in every step of the way, how the HIV vaccine uh, study being done from phase one to uh, to look at the safety, phase two, phase three, and each step they have a uh, safety mechanism built in. And a final popular myth is that there is no hope for an HIV vaccine. If I'm 100% positive that by 2030, we should be able to find an effective vaccine. Um, I think especially if we can borrow some of the lessons from the COVID vaccine development. I think my plea is to, to the researchers out there is don't give up. I think let's keep on fighting. Thank you to all of the guests. As we observe HIV Vaccine Awareness Day, I want to leave you with a final thought. While it's frustrating that 40 years after the emergence of AIDS in 1981, there is still no vaccine, but there has been progress. The COVID-19 response has sparked new possibilities for HIV vaccine research and development. And the rapid COVID-19 response would not have been possible without these past 40 years of work on HIV. But there are still many lessons to learn, according to Greg Gonzalez. Back then it was who had AIDS drugs and now who has a COVID vaccine is, is the new apartheid in the medical sphere raging across the world. And it's exactly what happened years ago. There's a certain set of people who put corporate interests and political interests ahead of the, ahead of the, the rights and the well-being of, of, of people around the world. And AIDS activists, anybody who cares about justice should, should not stand for it. Share your story and join the conversation online with the hashtag HIVRmuted for a chance to win IAS membership. On our next episode, we'll talk with Professor Francoise Barlet-Sinoussi, who discovered the HIV virus that causes AIDS and speak to the importance of following the science. This is HIV Unmuted, and like our title says, it can't keep us quiet. Subscribe to the IAS podcast, HIV Unmuted, wherever you get your podcasts.